Uh, good morning. It's great to be with you. Thanks for spending this hour with us, whether you're here in the auditorium or joining us online. We are grateful that you have come to spend this time with us. You know, for the past several weeks, we've been exploring this whole idea of who is God, trying to understand what it means to know him, to be in relationship with him, to look at how he has revealed his heart and his character to us, and how he wants to relate with us. That's been the whole quest for these last several weeks. It's taken us to a variety of passages, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, and we're continuing that study today and look at one of the most controversial statements that I believe Jesus made in his entire teaching time here on this earth. But before we do that, I want to tell you about a trip I made several years ago. <clears throat> Over the course of my career, I've been privileged to teach in many parts of the world, which has also taught me about many of the different religions that are a part of our world. It's not been an easy thing always, but it's always been interesting. For example, several years ago, I was invited to teach a group of pastors in Myanmar. Myanmar, some of you may know it as Burma, but the modern name for that country is Myanmar. It's a Buddhist country where Christianity is at best tolerated, and quite frankly, at worst, and currently, it's actually being persecuted by the ruling authorities of the country. It also happens to be one of two countries that I've been privileged to be in, where, and the other one is Syria, where I know I was under constant surveillance by the authorities. Wherever I went, I was being watched and followed, and they knew where I was at all times. That is a weird feeling. I, I can't tell you the stories about those two countries uh, because we don't have time for that, but buy me coffee at Starbucks someday, I'll fill you in. There's nothing quite like being in a country where you are under constant surveillance. One afternoon, uh, while I was in Myanmar, a couple of the students came to me after class and they said, uh, Dr. Bob, we would like to take you to the Shwedagong Pagoda. Now, because this is a Buddhist country, there are any number of Buddhist pagodas and shrines and temples in Myanmar. This one, however, is the largest in the country. It's an extremely significant sacred spot for the Buddhists. And among the relics that are collected in the Shwedagong uh, Pagoda are eight strands of the Buddha's hair. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't show them to me. I said, I'm a pastor, do I get to see? They said, no. Can I add one? <laughs> no. But there's supposed to be eight strands of his hair there, and that made it particularly significant. Now, the men with me, although they are Christian pastors today, they were both raised in Buddhist homes. And so they knew and understand the Buddhist faith quite well, and they wanted me to understand a bit more about it. They also wanted me to understand some of the challenges that they face as Christian pastors who are seeking to tell people about Jesus in a country where Jesus is not exactly welcome. The pagoda is huge. And we have a picture of it. This is just a portion of the totality of the site. But this piece in the center, this tall spire, is called a stupa. This one goes 367 feet in the air. So obviously it dominates the landscape of Yangon, the, the, what was then the capital city of, of Myanmar. 
what you can't quite tell, but maybe can guess from the coloration here, that is all solid gold. 22,000 gold bars cover the stupa from its base all the way to its top. When you walk around the pagoda area, there are over 100 shrines to the Buddha. And on this particular pagoda and the accompanying shrines, there are 1,380 statues of the Buddha. As you can see in this one, it's also covered in gold. The irony, of course, is that Myanmar is a horrifically poverty-stricken land. And so you go to the, to the pagoda, and you look at all this opulence, and it just doesn't connect. When you walk around, as I could, I, I would see... Myanmar people praying to one or any of the different statues of the Buddha, oftentimes with an incense stick in their hand. They'd be on their knees, bowing before the Buddha statue, praying, praying for things like health and safety and prosperity and good luck and happiness. They believed that that was the key for them. Traveling in various countries in Asia, I was exposed to Buddhism and to Hinduism. I learned about both. I've taught in the Middle East, where I've learned about Islam. I've taught in Europe and in South America, where I've learned a whole lot more about Catholicism. And it all leads to a very interesting question. This is the question. Aren't all religions fundamentally the same? I've heard people ask me that. You probably have heard it as well. Aren't all religions basically the same? Don't they all end up in the same place? We climb the mountain by different paths, but we all end up in the same place with this one God? Well, it's true that there are a lot of similarities between the various world religions. They all teach people to give, to serve, to love, and to forgive. They, they all invite people to, to leave selfishness behind and to pursue generosity. But as you dig deeper, there is something that makes Christianity unique from all of the other world religions. At the core of the Christian faith is this incredible idea that God became one of us. God became one of us which is very different from how other people think about their religions. In fact, it's shocking to many people. Other world religions are all about a man becoming God, about working your way up the, the hierarchical ladder until you become a God. But Christianity, that's different. This was really explained for us well by an early Jesus follower whose name was John. He was an eyewitness who followed Jesus for three years. He heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus heal. He had conversations with Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified. And he saw Jesus after he came back from the dead. John told everyone about Jesus. And as he and others did, Christianity began to spread like wildfire throughout the region. Decades later, John sat down and tried to summarize what he had seen and heard when he was with Jesus. 
And this is how he began his account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John introduces us to someone he calls the Word. And he notes that the Word was both with God and the Word was God. And that all of creation happened through the Word. And then a few verses later, John offers this showstopper of a comment. And the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, God, full of grace and truth. John is an old man when he writes this account. And he wants to make sure that the record of Jesus survives and that there's clarity about who this Jesus is and was. So he summarizes his three years of activity with Jesus with this incredible idea that in Jesus, God showed up in a human body. He embraced humanity and lived as one of us. This was not just John's thinking. This was not some random idea from this, this guy who hung around with Jesus for a few years. You read the New Testament, and this is riddled throughout the New Testament, that Jesus became us and lived our life. Today, I want to ask you this, this question. Why would God choose to come as one of us? Why would God choose to come as one of us? In the first century, no one was expecting this. No one was looking for God to become a man. There were some Jewish people who were looking for a Messiah, what they would have called the anointed one, what we might call a savior. But no one expected God to come in a body. In fact, no one in the entire ancient world expected a God to become a man. For them, it was all about people trying to become gods, not a God trying to become a man. Um, no one of us expected God to become one of us either. But as they, as they, even if they did, even if they did think that God would become a man, I don't think they would have expected him to come like he did. I mean, who would have expected God to become a human as a baby, tiny, tender, fragile, helpless? Think about it. If you were to tell a story of a God becoming a man, would you have had that God come as a baby? I don't think I would. I would have had him come on a clear sunny day with trumpets blasting, with angels shouting, coming out of the sky on this fiery chariot saying, hey, I'm here. You wouldn't have him born as a baby to a peasant couple in a manger? Joseph being a carpenter? Jesus grew up in obscurity. 
It wasn't until he was 30 that, that he actually enters the pages of history, and history has never been the same since he did. The answer to why God became a man is found in, in another conversation that John records for us. Between, this conversation takes place between Jesus and his disciples, and it's near the end of his time with them on this earth. Let me set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus has just, excuse me, Jesus has just told them that he had to leave them. But they, they, don't, they don't have to worry about it because, well, he's going to come back. And they respond probably like this. What? You're leaving? Uh, no way. Uh, you leave, we worry. That's how this works. You're not with us, we worry. You're with us, we're calm. Uh, you know, don't you, Jesus, that the religious leaders here don't like us? And the only reason right now that we feel safe is because you're here. You leave, we worry. That's the way it works. Sorry. There's a lot of emotion going on for the disciples as Jesus is telling them this. And then he begins to unfold a picture for them. And we've gone now well into John's account to the 14th chapter. If you're ever in a conversation, let me read this first. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Well, believe also in me. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. You believe in God? Oh, yeah, sure we do. Okay, then believe in me also. And if you're ever in a conversation with someone today who says to you that, hey, you believe in God, right? Oh, yeah. Well, then believe in me also. I suggest that you just get up and leave. Because somebody who says that to you, yeah, they may not be just right there may be a marble or two rattling that needs to be nailed down somehow. It's either ridiculous or true to say something like that. And there's no middle ground. It's either absolutely true or totally outlandish. Fortunately, Jesus didn't get up and leave. And the disciples didn't either. Jesus stayed, and I can imagine he said something, that John said something to him like, uh, Jesus, wait a minute, okay? Slow down, dial it down. I'm writing here. And I'm having a hard time keeping up. Help me understand. And Jesus continues. My father's house has many rooms. Now you may have learned another version where it says my father's house has many mansions. I think the better Greek word is rooms. So if you're looking forward to some big marble edifice up in heaven someday, think more about a luxury apartment. That's probably closer to what you're going to get. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And then he makes this statement. You know the way to the place I am going. I suspect that caused the disciples a little confusion and maybe a little consternation. Uh, Jesus, okay, you're leaving, and then you're going to come back. And then when you do come back, you're going to take us to where you just left so that we can be with you there? Uh, I don't get it. Why all this movement? Finally, one of the disciples asked him the obvious question. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? In other words, we know you know what you're talking about, but we don't. And you know where you're going, 
and we don't. You said you're going away and not to worry because you're going to come back. And then you said that we don't need to worry because we know the way. But Jesus, we don't know the way. And Jesus said to Thomas and the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's that point that Jesus rattles everyone and continues to rattle everyone. This is probably one of the most offensive statements that Jesus ever made. And it still causes people heartburn today. It's a difficult statement because we say, how can there only be one way? Jesus claims to be the one and only way to a relationship with God. I don't want to stop and say something here a minute to give you maybe something new to think about. I think it's pretty cool, actually. After Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, his followers were not immediately called Christians. That's a term that we use in more modern terminology. It, and it came late, much later, after Jesus had left this earth. Christians literally means little Christs. So think about that when you call yourself a Christian. That you are to be a little Christ, a little representation of who he is. But that came not out of a complimentary form. That was actually given as a derogatory reference. These little Christs. It's kind of like, oh, he's such a hillbilly. That was not a complimentary term when the Christians were called Christians first. What they were first called, what they were first called in these early days, is followers of the way. The disciples, the people who came to trust Jesus, who began to walk as followers of Christ, were called initially followers of the way. And it comes right from this. And you know, there are days when I'd much rather be called a follower of the way than Christian because that term has gotten so polluted and distorted in our modern culture. Uh, then Jesus says something even more offensive than what he just said in the next verse. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, I think the disciples must have just been stunned. What Jesus had just said has rocked their world. So Philip, another of the disciples, decides, uh, Jesus... Can you stop for a second? Because I really want to understand this. And he asks this. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father. In other words, Jesus, I know what you've just said about going away and coming back, and how you are the way, the only way to the Father. But it's kind of confusing. I'll tell you what. If you could just simplify us, simplify this, show us the Father, and we're good. We're golden. It'll be perfect. If you can just do that, we would appreciate it. Haven't you ever wanted to do that? To say, God, just show up, will you? Just show yourself. I want to know for certain that there is a God and that you are with me in all of this. You wanted to see something. You wanted to hear something from him. You wanted some kind of a sign, some kind of a demonstration. 
to know that he was there with you. Now, you didn't want that to happen at night in the dark because it's a little scary. All of a sudden, he's standing at the foot of your bed going, yeah, what did you need? Uh, that'd freak you out a little bit. But you still want him to show up somehow. You want to hear from him. You want him to speak to you. And you thought, if I could know that there is a God, know for myself by seeing and hearing, a God who knows me and knows my name and cares about me, I'll be all set. Yeah, but listen to what Jesus said in response to Philip. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, I'm right here. If you want to know what God would say, listen to me. If you want to understand God's perspective on something, pay attention to me. If you want to know what, how God would respond to something, then watch me. If you want to know how God would get involved in a situation, then learn from me. Jesus said, I'm here. You will never get a better clue about what God is like than me. This is so important for you and me. Jesus came as one of us to show us what God is like. Let me say that again. Jesus came as one of us to show us what God is like. God wants you and me to know him. Not as some abstract deity tucked away in the heavens someplace. He wants you and me to know him on a personal level. And he wasn't content to simply send a letter, send information, to send us something. He wanted to send us himself. And so Jesus came. So that we would, be ha we would have a personal relationship with the living God. He made it personal for you and me. Instead of hoping that we would look up and find him somewhere or figure it out somehow, he came down. He became like us. He became one of us. He lived among us so that we would know him. He didn't want us to have to guess what God was like. God sent himself in the person of his son to show us what God is like. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. He didn't come to tell us about God. He came to show us God. And here's a challenge for us. We have, we, all of us have a tendency to try to figure out God, but we go to all the wrong places when we try to figure out what God is like. Let me explain we often look to our religious traditions to try to understand God. Now, if you were raised in church, you were taught some things about God. And you also caught some things about God by watching the people around you. I grew up in the Reformed tradition, like some of you did. I learned along the way that God doesn't like people to wash their cars on Sunday. or do homework, 
or shoot hoops or play catch or go out to eat or swim. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm getting better. But I learned that. I also learned that God likes potlucks. <laughs> Me personally, not a big fan. Cream squash is okay, but I'm not a lot. That was my religious tradition, and I, I absorbed things about God from that. And you did too, from whatever tradition you had. You learned, you learned about God by tradition. And from them we develop our view of God. But the problem with all religious traditions is this. They tend to systematize, customize, emphasize, and fossilize. They systematize things, they try to put it all in order. They customize it to fit what we like in our tradition. Then they emphasize it saying, this is it, like don't wash your car on Sunday. And then it fossilizes, it becomes the law of the Medes and Persians, the law of the land. This is the way it is, it's what we do. The problem is that along the way, as much as I like systematizing things, we get into trouble. Because every time we try to craft the permanent answer for the question of the moment, the questions change. And suddenly we don't have answers anymore. And now our tradition leaves us floundering. Religious traditions do have value. They really do. But they're limited in helping us to know what God is really like. If you don't have religious traditions, some people, they go back to circumstances to try to determine what God is like. And the problem with using circumstances is that we're terrible. We are awful at interpreting our circumstances to try to determine what God is like. Case in point. When something good happens, we say, oh, God is so good. He is so gracious. We love him for this good thing that's happened to us. Something bad happens, and we complain that God should have done something to stop it. Why did he let this happen? I think of a young man who lost his job and wondered, why could, why could God let this happen to me, that I lose my job? It was so bad that he had to move back into his home with his parents. Shortly after he moved back in, his dad became seriously ill. At that point, this young man was so glad that he had moved back home where he could help care for his dad. The timing was absolutely perfect for this to happen. So, was the loss of his job a bad thing or a good thing? Be careful how you interpret your circumstances because it can get very confusing very fast. I think of the 17-year-old girl who gets mad at God because God didn't do what she prayed for him to do. And what did she pray for him to do? Well, the prom was coming up, and he, she wanted him to ask her to the prom. And so she prayed, God, please let him ask me to the prom. And he didn't. And she decides that God can't be trusted with her prayers because he doesn't answer her prayers. At the same time she was praying, her mom was praying, oh God, please don't let him ask her to the prom. <laughs> and mom's going, hallelujah, God answers prayer. 
Now, what is it? Does God answer prayer or not answer prayer? If you look at circumstances alone, it gets a little confusing. It's hard to determine what God is like by trying to interpret our circumstances. And so then sometimes we say, well, it's just within me. I have what I need within me. Uh, the problem with looking within is that what is within is limited to what already is within. So you're kind of stuck with yourself at that point. You can only go so far by looking within uh, because God is so much bigger than whatever is within you. You can't be limited in that fashion. It's not a bad idea to look in. It's not, but it's limited. And here's the real kicker about that one. You know, when you're 16 years old and you look within, you aren't the same as when you're 35 and you look within. And you don't have the same within as when you're 65. And so what's within is maybe not enough to help you understand who God is. Here's the bottom line. You can look to religious traditions, and you can look to circumstances, and you can look within in your quest to figure out what God is like, but you'll never get the true picture. Because God wants you to know him. He became like us in Jesus so that you would get to know him, which leads to the big idea for today. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, get to know Jesus. Don't be looking around you. Look at Jesus, because he will give you the best, best picture of what God is like. It's that simple and that powerful. And here's what it means. If in your quest to know God, you stop short of Jesus, you stop short of the insights about God that can help you. If you simply rely on traditions or circumstances or what's within, you're going to fall short and you're going to miss what God has for you. If in your quest to know God, you move past Jesus, kind of saying, well, I need Jesus, but I also need this, whatever this is, you're moving away from God. So let me say it again. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. As we close today, I want to give you a little homework. I mean, school's coming up. We were with some young friends yesterday, uh, and she's a school teacher. They live in Indiana. She goes back to school tomorrow. Her students come on Wednesday. So if you think it's bad starting in three weeks, ah, move to Indiana. <laughs> I want to give you homework anyway. I want to challenge you to read about the life and work of Jesus. And where would you do that? I suggest you go into your Bible, go to the New Testament portion. There are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start with John, where we've been looking today, and start to read. And then read it with this question in mind. What do I learn about the Father from the Son? Maybe keep a little notebook or a three-by-five card or something. As you read about the life of Jesus, what do I learn about the Father from the Son? And I believe that if you do this, you will begin to know God in a new way. And one of the things that will marvel is that as you get to know God, you begin to find out just how much he loves you. And there is nothing better than knowing that this God who came to be with us, who lived among us, 
who has gone will come back and will take us to be with him, loves you with an everlasting love. Okay. What I want to say is that in a moment, I'm going to pray. But some of you came here today and there's a challenge, a burden, a struggle that you're facing. We've got a couple of Keystone friends that are going to be over here underneath this screen. And they would love to pray with you and pray for you. And so if there's a way that we can be helpful to you today by having someone pray with you and for you, just head on over here after we conclude the prayer. And now, please stand as we conclude our service together. Father, we are grateful that you have shown yourself real to us by sending Jesus, who has helped us to understand what you are like. So help us to look to him when we want to know what you are like. Help us to learn from what he has said, to absorb what he has done, to value the perspective he offers so that we might know you better, so that we might walk more deeply in the love that you have for us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, even though sometimes we are not particularly lovely. But thank you that your love reaches beyond and that you indeed love us enough to become one of us. We give you praise and glory. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. God bless you.